Good morning, Third Street. How y'all feeling? Blessed. Cool. I'm glad to know how Sly is doing. Apparently, y'all don't want me to know about the rest of y'all, and that's fine. We're going to talk about you today. So, uh, if you don't know me, my name is Corey. I'm the lead pastor here at Third Street Community Church, and it is my distinct honor and privilege this morning to bring forth the word of our Lord, one of my most favorite things that God sees so fit miraculously to have me do with you guys. Uh, We're going to continue this morning in a series that we started just a few weeks ago right after Resurrection Sunday called Verified. Are you with me this morning? Can you say verified? Verified. How many of you in this room got a blue check mark? Say what's up. That's what I thought. (laughs) I was just just curious. Um, (laughs) In this series called Verified, we are walking through the accounts Uh, post-resurrection Sunday, the accounts in Scripture that saw Jesus in his resurrected form. We started by talking about right after, uh, early, that Sunday morning, right after that dark, dark Friday, as Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and she saw him, well, she didn't see him, (laughs) right? She didn't see him at all. And that created a lot of questions. And Deshaun led us through a conversation that, that brought us back to the main point that your testimony matters. Your story matters. It doesn't matter how the rest of the world sees you. It doesn't matter how the person across from you is about to receive it. It doesn't matter if your entire life people have told you to shush. Your testimony matters. And it is by the blood of the lamb that was shed on the cross and the word of your, yes, even you, your testimony that the enemy of this world is defeated. Last week, we talked about this account right after that happened where two disciples were walking on their way to Emmaus. And this man started taking the journey with them. And little did they realize that it was the resurrected Christ who was walking with them. And we brought it down to the main point that even when all of our hope is lost, even when we have completely forgotten all that we have learned, even when we are in such a dark place that we can't even think of the light, Jesus walks with us. And now this week... We get to pick up literally in the next verse where we left off. So if you remember correctly, we were in the Gospel of Luke. We were in the 24th chapter. We concluded on the 35th verse. So this week, we're going to pick ourselves up in Luke 24, verse 36. If you have your physical Bibles, I invite you to turn there. If you want to pull up your electronic devices and fight off the temptation of the devil to stay off of Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and or Twitter, you feel free to do that. Uh, oh, yeah, and I got to say TikTok now, too, because, you know, I'm old and I for always forget that one. Um, otherwise, we got it up here on the screen for you. This is Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 36. The Gospel of Luke reads this way. It says, as they, talking about the two guys that were on the way to Emmaus, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened. The other disciples thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. 
For a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, you have anything here to eat? My man's hungry. He's been through a lot the last couple of days. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish because nothing says happy resurrection like fish. And he took it and he ate before him. And as he's chewing, he says to them, see, these words are my words. These words are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You, you're witnesses to these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. We all know the feeling. We all know the feeling. I'm not talking about being at a dinner party and then one of the guests inevitably starts rolling up their sleeves and inappropriately showing scars. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the feeling when we take a risk. When we actually miraculously put ourselves out there. And then something happens. Right? We had a lot to overcome to even put ourselves out there in the first place. To see ourselves be as vulnerable as we just were. All for what? For something to hurt us. And when that something happens, whatever it was, we have a tendency to then go back inside, to hide, to protect ourselves, to put our walls up. If you're in any leadership development space with me, you've surely heard me talk about this often, but... I'm talking about the moment where we are willing to leave continued relationship and impact on the table for the sake of our own protection, for the sake of our own safety. We're willing to leave alone what could be for the safety and security of protecting ourselves. We call this the wall of self-preservation. And you might be thinking to yourself, cool, why on earth are you talking about this? Because it doesn't explicitly say it in the Gospel of Luke, but in the Gospel of John, telling of the same account, John says that the doors were locked where the disciples were gathering. The doors were locked for fear of the Jews. See, the Disciples weren't gathered to celebrate the resurrection that they had heard about. The disciples were not gathered because it's Friday night and this is what we do. The disciples were not gathered to watch the football game that night 
The disciples were gathered to hide. They were afraid. They were scared. They were hiding. They were retreating. They were going back inward in order to protect themselves. Because the unbelievable had just happened. The seemingly insurmountable had just occurred. Their Jewish leaders, their chief priests, had just, had just not only convinced politicians, but the masses. They convinced the crowd to kill the person that they had dedicated their lives to following. They had gotten the crowd so hyped up that the crowd had completely forgotten the heinous crimes of Barabbas in order to cancel, I mean crucify, Jesus Christ. And now they were threatening. I know, I was upset too, Miles. They were threatening Jesus' followers with excommunication. We're going to kick you out. And we know on this side of history that that threat of excommunication actually got a lot worse. They actually ended up killing disciples. The world outside was no longer a safe place for the disciples. As a matter of fact, it felt as if the world outside was raging against them. They were afraid to lose. First of all, they were afraid to lose their lives. I can't go outside no more. You know what people are going to do to me if I go out there? I can't even walk the streets of the town that I grew up in anymore. I can't even go down the street in a city that me and my family came to for vacation every year. They feared that they would lose their lives. The disciples feared that they would lose their cultural identity because it was the Jewish leaders that were calling for this. They would say things like, you don't even know what it means to be Jewish anymore if you follow that guy. Not that any of us could relate to such a narrative. How are you going to follow that guy? Don't you know you're a Jew? Don't you know where you come from? Don't you know the tradition that we teach? Don't you know? They were afraid to lose their freedom. They had just spent the last few years following a man that taught that everything was made clean. That these limitations that society had put on them, that these limitations that culture had put on them, that this guilt and this shame that they carried, that that, that, that wasn't what the kingdom was like. That all of these laws and regulations that politicians and religious leaders use to keep their thumb on your head, to keep you oppressed, to keep you down, to keep you from winning, that's not what the kingdom was like. But now the man who so boldly taught that, now the man who so boldly proclaimed that, now the man who led their way in that was gone. And the world outside was like, "Mm -mm, you ain't coming out here with that energy. But then Jesus appears in their hiding through locked doors. 
Jesus pops up. Did you catch that? How did Jesus get in there? The door was locked. What, no windows? Did you let him in? Who left the door cracked? Not nobody. It was dead bolted. But Jesus was standing there among them. Jesus shouldn't have been able to get in. The door was locked. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And also, we watched him die. We watched him bleed out. We watched him buried. We watched that stone rolled over the opening. We watched guards keep watch. We watched the end. How on earth, through locked door, through death, through heavy stone, through burial, through hell, is Jesus standing right here with me? Jesus' presence alone was good news because clearly he was no longer bound to the physical limitations of this world. Jesus' freedom was stripped of him. Jesus' cultural identity was mocked. Jesus' life was taken from him. And yet he stood here alive. Ready to be with the Father. Ready to see the good news of eternity spread, not just to Jerusalem, not just to the 12, but to the world. Jesus had everything taken from him. And yet here he was with eternity, with an inheritance that he promised. Here he was. Church, there are three questions that I believe get us to the root of why we put these walls of self-preservation up. The first one is this. What are you afraid to lose? What are you afraid to lose? Some of us got the righteous answer, right? We're talking about, like, I'm afraid to lose my family. Okay. And so we do everything we can. We do everything we can to protect our family. But in the fight to protect our family, we forget to be attentive to the Spirit. We forget that God's protection is greater than our own. And we forget to lead them in the presence of our Lord. Some of us are afraid of losing our finances. I've created a nice life for myself, Jesus. And you know this change of administration poses a threat. You know, this, you know, if the stocks go a certain type of way, you know, if this product doesn't get shipped out, you know, if this, there are all types of threat. And so we begin to act out of protecting, out of what we're afraid to lose. And we lose our way. What is it that you are so desperately afraid to lose? Because the good news that you need to receive this morning is that Jesus' resurrection teaches us we have no fear of losing. That we have nothing to lose. As a matter of fact, Scripture is written that he who loses their lives for my sake will gain. 
Jesus said it himself, for what does it profit a man to gain the world? If you lose your soul. Because of the resurrection, because of Jesus standing beyond lock and key, we are empowered to live as if we have nothing to lose. And when we live like we have nothing to lose, when we live as if everything we have, yes, even our family, yes, even our finances are given over to the Lord, we stand everything to gain in return. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that that when the guards who were protecting the tomb woke up, yeah, we forgot about them, right? Like, imagine being in that spot. Imagine being the mighty soldiers that were like, listen, these zealots, they're stinking nuts, right? They're crazy. They're going to come and they're going to try and dig up this body and they're going to take it with them. You two, you're the finest. You're warriors. You're soldiers. You're strong. We're, we're, we're building you up. You are made for this. You were built for this. This is your job. This is who you are. This is, we are calling you to protect this tomb. You don't let anyone enter this tomb. Don't even let them sniff this, sniff this rock. You protect it at all costs. And then they take a little nap and they wake up and they're like, oh, no. (laughs) Bruh. What happened? They were scared. They were scared, right? So they ran to the high priest. They're like, hey, um, how how are y'all doing? Wild couple of days, huh? Hmm. So let's just say that hypothetically, right? Um, just not that this happened, but like what would happen if, right? The Gospel of Matthew tells us that story, and it tells us about how the chief priests shared in the guards' concern that Jesus' body was no longer there. So the chief priests paid the guards off, paid them off to tell people that they saw Jesus' disciples come by night and steal his body and that they woke up just a little bit too late. Matthew also writes that this story has been spread among the Jews even to this day. That there's still a story, that there's still a narrative that exists, that Jesus didn't really get up. That it was these zealots that that Jesus called his disciples that went and took his body. Did what with it? I don't know, but they wanted people to think that he was resurrected. And so the outside world, this is the narrative that they adhere. So they're raging against these disciples. They're raging against these followers. Like, y'all have gone too far. Never mind the fact that the the line that they had been fed behind which they all rallied was a complete and total lie. I know it's hard for us to imagine a world where facts don't matter anymore. We can just get behind a cause just because somebody's super mad about it. But, But that's what was happening. So the, the, as the outside world was raging against the disciples for reasons that weren't even true, another aspect of what was fueling the disciples' fear 
other than just wanting to hold on to their heads, was this overwhelming desire to be proven right. Because here Jesus stood. And so they knew they weren't wrong. That they wanted to prove their innocence. We didn't take his body. You see the size of that rock? I wasn't moving it. Neither was Peter. With his fisherman muscles. Wasn't moving that rock. They wanted to prove their innocence. They wanted to prove that Jesus was who he said he was. That when he said that he would suffer and die, but on the third day he would raise up, that that's exactly what happened. I need you to know that that's the truth. And they wanted to prove, I have to believe, that, that them leaving everything behind to follow Jesus wasn't worthless. It wasn't meaningless. That actually they made the right decision. They wanted to prove themselves. <laughs> Jesus appearing to them that night behind closed doors was their own personal verification that these things were true. Jesus shows him the scars on his body to say, yeah, it's me. It really is me. Here's where the nails were. Here's where they whipped me. Here's where they stuck the spear. He shows them the scars as if to say it really is me. And Christ's bodily resurrection and the evidence his body still carried proved the disciples were innocent. Proved that Jesus is and was the Christ. And it proves that the disciples did the right thing. And even though this happened behind closed doors, and even though the outside world wouldn't receive the same up-close and personal verification, this gave the disciples the affirmation and the confidence they needed to go out and face the outside world. To leave and to lead by the Spirit's power. They had no need to go out and prove themselves because Jesus had already proven himself. They had no need to go out and justify themselves because Jesus had already justified them. And the outside world may never see it. The outside world may never recognize it, but they did. In Christ, they were justified. Church, what are you trying to prove? What is it that you're trying to prove? And to whom? Who you need that affirmation from? Who you need to prove yourself right in front of? Listen, I could talk all day about this one. This is my whole life. This, my whole life, I've worn this chip on my shoulder of trying to prove myself. I've worn this chip on my shoulder of trying to prove that I belong somewhere. Because I always felt just a little bit off, right? Even if, even if I got the crowd on my side... I always felt just a little bit off about it. Like I didn't quite belong. But I wanted to prove that I did. My whole life I've been trying to prove my competency. I've been trying to prove that God made me capable. See, I'm just 
wild enough to believe that God asked me to lead. And so as I step out to do it, for some reason, this feeling of other people not believing what God has told me sinks in and I start to lead out of, out of my own proving myself to y'all rather than what God has asked me to do. For whatever reason, I have this deep need even to this day to prove that I have the capacity that I need. To prove that I can do it. Because I know that God has, God has placed a significant weight on this place. That God has given a clear vision of where we're headed. And can I tell you something even crazier? I believe that we're going to get there. But I also know that I'm tired. I know that so is my team. And for some reason, the thought, I let the devil sink in the thought that people doubt that we can get there and that I don't have the capacity to lead us forward. That I'm letting people down with the margin that doesn't exist in my life. And so I drive myself into the ground in order to prove that Satan is wrong. Stop it. <laughs> but here's, here's what the Spirit reminds me of. Is that when, when we live into our identity in Christ... What I mean by that is when we, when we confidently live out of who God says we are, not out of who we want other people to think we are, when we live out of our identity in Christ, we don't need to prove ourselves. We've already been proven because he's been proven. We don't need to be justified because he justified us. I don't need your approval because God told me to go. What I'm reminded of is that when we're living out the teachings Jesus gave, we don't need to prove his existence with our words. I don't need to reason with you. I don't need to flex my degree. I don't need to show you that I've been in my word because you should be able to experience it by the way that I'm living my life. Church, when we're attentive to the Holy Spirit, we don't need to prove that we know what we're doing. When we're doing what the Lord has asked us to do, we don't need to worry about other people thinking we can't because they'll be proven fools when we do. You feel me? Jesus' resurrection means that we can live as if we have nothing to prove because he's already been proven. And before Jesus disappears from this interaction, he gives the disciples a difficult charge. He insinuates that they need to be ready to go back out there. Right? But here's the problem. The disciples weren't Jesus, right? You're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. I'm sensitive. I don't like that scrutiny. I think the comment section is mean. 
And also, I got a sketchy past. Like, I don't know if, I don't know if I'm the only one. Like, y'all been holy butts your whole life, but like, I got a sketchy past. Right? I got people that you could walk up on and be like, you know Corey? And they're like, let me tell you about Corey. Yo, two weeks ago, one of my friends from high school told my dad about this banger party I threw at their house while they were out of town. And I'm still wrestling with the guilt from him finding out. I'm 32 whole years old, and he just looked at me like, you did what while I was gone? And I'm like, but I mean, no, what had happened was they invite, I just invited a few people, and I'm standing here trying to explain myself as a grown man. I had that party, okay? And it was fun. It was wrong, but Jesus forgave me. And I would never throw a party at your house now. I know you will be. Listen, the disciples were sinful men. The disciples were sinful women. They had some sketchy pasts. They had some stuff that the world could dig up and bring up. And we live in that society, don't we, right? Where you put yourself out there too far, somebody's going to come along in the comment section and be like, "Uh uh-uh, no, you come down off that pedestal, sir or madam, because don't you remember when you hurt me? Don't you remember when you said something offensive? Don't you remember before you saw the light, this is how you was living? How many people would even listen to them? How many people would even believe the disciples? Because isn't this the same dude that left his family hanging? Isn't this the same dude that was fishing on the Sabbath, breaking all types of cultural traditions? I can't go out there and preach because do you know what they'll say about me? Surely I can't do the things that Jesus is asking me to do. Surely I can't be who God has called me to be because I've already messed that up. But Jesus shares in that space that there is a message that needs to be proclaimed. The message that needs to be proclaimed is that guilt and shame had been left in the grave. That the burial clothes was guilt and shame. That the burial clothes that were left and folded up neatly and nicely in the grave that didn't come with Jesus when he walked out was all the stuff that was in your past. And he says that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Not just the Jews, not just to the people that you like, but to all people, everybody can come forth with their brokenness. And that which you bring to light can and will be forgiven. Church, I got one more for you. What are you trying to hide? What are you trying to hide? And listen, I'm not getting spooky on you. I don't know what it is, but I know it's there. I don't claim to know what you've been up to. I don't claim to know what you've been struggling with. I just claim to know I know you've been doing it. What's that thing 
that you don't think the person next to you can handle if they knew about you. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you some good news. Jesus can handle it. What's that thing that you've been trying to defeat by yourself? But somehow, even through temporary victories, it comes back with a vengeance. Can I tell you some good news? Jesus can overcome it. What's that thing that keeps you isolated? What's that thing that keeps you from sharing your vulnerable self with everybody else? What's that thing that keeps you giving the 90 but holding back the 10? I said, what's that thing that keeps you while you're giving the 90 from offering the 10? Can I tell you some good news? Jesus can destroy it. The message that Christ wants to spread to every person is that when you bring your sinful, broken, shoddy, shady self into the light, when you bring your hurt into the light, when you bring the thoughts that you've been trying to hide into the light, when you bring those feelings that you've been trying not to act on into the light. When you bring those past transgressions into the light, let me say that more plain. When you bring all the stuff that you've been doing into the light, there's forgiveness. When you come with the heart of repentance, not the heart of like, I hope y'all don't find out, so let me tell you a little bit. Not the heart of like, I fear that I'm losing, so let me, let me try and say something to, to, to make this better. But the heart of repentance. The heart of, I'm trying to give this to the feet of Jesus, and I'm trying to like, walk away from it. Let it stay there. I'm trying to turn and go the other way. When you come with that heart, there's forgiveness. No matter what it is. Church. I need you to know that Jesus knows and sees your wall of self-preservation. Low-key, we all see your wall of self-preservation. But Jesus knows why it's there. Jesus knows why you locked the door. Jesus knows why you've been in that hole. Jesus knows what's really been going on. Jesus knows why you're trying to hide. Jesus knows what you're trying to protect. Jesus knows what you're trying to prove. And Jesus just wants to be in that space with you. He wants to come through that wall, miraculously so. And he wants to offer you himself. He wants to offer you a relationship. A relationship that turns your anxiety into joy. It says that the disciples were shocked that they couldn't believe he was there. That they barely believed that he was there. And as a matter of fact, the scars was probably the only thing that they was like, I mean, I. But even in the middle 
of doubt, they were filled with joy. Their anxiety was replaced with joy. It went from, I can't believe it, to, I can't believe it. Jesus wants to come through that wall of self-preservation. He wants you to unlock the door. He wants you to bring it down on your own. But if you're not gonna, because I know some of you are like me, and you're too stubborn to do it yourself, too stubborn to unlock that door, you're too stubborn to bring that wall down, he's more than willing to come through it and sit there with you. He's been doing it. You just didn't look next to you. He's been doing it. And he's offering you a relationship to replace your fear, to replace your anxiety, to replace your, your stress, to replace your worry with joy. And to empower you to go out with a message that what he just did for you is not just for you, but it's for those around you. It's for those you ain't even met yet. It's for those that you believe are too far gone. My question to you this morning, church, is are you willing? Are you willing to let God give you the spirit that he promises? To turn your fear to joy. To break down your walls so you can lean into relationship and maximum impact as you are empowered to live as if you have nothing to lose. Nothing. Nothing to hide. And nothing to prove. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for the breath in our lungs. We thank you for the word that we needed to hear. God, we thank you that even though we thought we had it all on lockdown, You came through our fear. You came through our anxiety. You came through our doubt and through our worry to offer us a relationship with you. That all that we read our world has been through, that all that we know we have been through has been cleansed by the blood of your son Jesus. God, we thank you that you want to empower us to live a life that as it moves forward, it marks out a path worth other people following. And God, we pray that you would bring to the forefront of our minds right now in this time which of these questions is contributing to our own wall of self-preservation. Lord, show us, remind us of the things that we're trying to hide. 
Remind us of the things we're trying to prove. Remind us of the things that we're holding on to for dear life because we're scared to lose it. So that we may lay down our fear and anxiety as we give those things over to you and trust you with them. Lord, I pray that doors are unlocked this morning. I pray that walls are knocked down. And the invitation to receive you is accepted with clear and hopeful hearts, albeit tired and worried bodies. Lord, we receive you in the promise of your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. All who believe say, bless up.